Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I'm your host, Michael Columbus. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. We are excited to have uh, two people that I've thankfully um, spent some time speaking with and have met personally over through the years through the Purposeful Planning Institute. Um, and we're you know, joined by Tom Rogerson, who has very illustrious career. I'm going to ask you to talk about that just a little bit in a second, uh, Tom, and tell us about your journey. And Sean, um, oh, I just did that thing. Sean Barbarous. Um, I, I just, the, the name just, I apologize, Sean. I just wanted to say something else that just popped into my head wrong. Um, Sean has, you know, again, another great career and has done some really unique things with some software to help families out um, amongst many other things. So I you know, ask you both to just talk about your journey. Um, how did you get here you know, at this point, um, talking with family businesses and families of wealth? Um, you know, how did that start for you? So Sean, why don't you uh, kick us off and uh, tell us about yourself a little bit. Sure. Um, so how did I start working with families of wealth? Uh, it was during law school. I got a job down at a downtown law firm where I was doing estate and business planning for a lot of successful business owners. Obviously, as a clerk, I was still in law school. Um, so I really got exposed to all kinds of advanced planning tactics and instruments uh, during law school. So that was about 1997. Uh, that, that I started doing that. And I started to really work in that industry. And then when my wife and I graduated law school, uh, we passed the bar in 2000. I actually started my own law firm in which I carried on much of the same work. I drafted documents, Kratz, Kratz, trusts, you know, dynasty trusts, ESOPs, all that kind of fun stuff, buy-sell agreements, executive comp. Um, and then folks kept bringing me their financial statements or life insurance. And I was not qualified nor licensed to advise on uh, financial and securities and insurance and so forth. So I got licensed and um, had a ton of fun and was a top 1% advisor for a number of years. Uh, started a um, financial services company from scratch with two partners. It was just the three of us. We grew it into 76 registered reps, over 220 brokers around the country. Uh, and then I left. Uh, I realized there was a hole in the middle of the professional planning donut through personal experience of, of working um, now with hundreds of high net worth and ultra high net worth families. And I wanted to hire researchers at Premier Planning Group at our financial services firm. So my two partners kind of shied away thinking it was a little, little too time intensive, a little too expensive. So I respectfully sold my third in the business and I started my current company. Uh, more than money 360 and we hired researchers that came back to us and highlighted uh, the issues why wealth transfers fail 
And then we surveyed the market. It was a very consultative market, very time intensive market, a market that required people to be in the same place a lot. And I thought that wasn't completely congruent to the busy geographically dispersed lifestyle. So we did. So we built our first version of the technology in Q4 of 2007. And um, right now we're uh, launching our fifth version in September. And it's been no holds barred, full steam ahead ever since 2007. So we're excited. That's a little bit about my history at this point, And uh, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Tom, take a second, introduce yourself. Sure. Yeah. Tom Rogerson. And uh, my background uh, really started with a family history. My, uh, on my father's side, my great-grandfather was a very successful business leader in Boston, became the president of Boston Safe Deposit and Trust Company, grew to be the largest financial institution in the Northeast by pretty much any measure, and uh, started a foundation in Boston that right now has a little bit more than a billion dollars in it. So he was doing pretty well, even by today's standards. Um, his estate plan was designed to get the bulk of the money down to the family. I'm his great-grandson, and it's gone, not because of... Uh, bad investing or bad planning. We had phenomenal planning and phenomenal, he owned an investment management company. I mean, you can't, and uh, it's gone because of how the family operated. I'm not saying anything bad about the family when I say that wonderful, loving, great family, but we didn't know what to do differently. And we fell into the trap that most families fall into. So I started when I first uh, became, got out of college, I started in the financial service industry and worked at Merrill Lynch and Kidder Peabody but I was uh, helping more on the planning side. I became the national director of estate tax planning for a couple of Wall Street firms and wealth management firms. But going back about 30 years ago, I started looking at the research of why families were failing and it had almost nothing to do with the quality of the investment management, it had almost nothing to do with the quality of the estate planning, it had almost everything to do with were they preparing the family. And so I started adding what I would now call family governance to what I was doing back then. And I would talk about a generation skipping trust, but how do you introduce to the family? And people were much more interested in the, how do you introduce these things to the family than they were about the planning structures themselves. So that became my focus. And I now have had a chance to run family meetings for over 260 families now um, in helping them get started in this space. And I've done surveys of an additional over 200 families on top of that. And now I just share that research and information with families and my wife and I do it together but we do it together um, in a consultative approach. Love it. Well, thank you both for taking the time and joining us. Um, we spent a little bit of time together, the three of us prepping to, you know, what do, what do we want to talk about? What excites us? And, uh, um, you know, between the three of us and, you know, Tom throughout the strong families survive tough times. The tough times are upon us. How's your family? Um, and I think that's just a powerful you know, question and a powerful metaphor for what is going on right now. And, you know, the, the first point that we, you know, that we talked about was the fact that, you know, what are, you know, what are the things that strong family, strong families do differently than families that don't. And the, you know, the strong families major in the majors. And so I guess let's start there. What are the majors? Tom, why don't you kick us off on, on that? And then Sean and I will, you know, bounce back and forth with you a little bit on, you know, where that takes us. Sure. Well, yeah, that um, the, the title, first of all, comes from I've been doing this for quite a while and we've gone through a number of issues before. Um, and so I use that title to indicate to families that strong families do survive through tough times. I mean, in the surveys of the 200 plus families that we've worked with, um, those families 
almost all of them have survived through over 100 years of difficult times. And it, it, by definition, that means they've gone through the epidemic that we had before, the Spanish flu. They, they've lived through world wars. They've lived through the depression. They've Somehow these families got through some very difficult times. And it's very few that did. But what were they doing differently? And I think the most interesting thing I found more recently is when, uh, or at least the reception we've gotten from explaining to people how it is that this happens. And most wealth in this country is actually first generation wealth. And those people often grow up with a middle class or maybe blue collar working class background or lower middle class background. And the way I would describe it, they grew up in a, tr a tremendous environment of interdependence. They had to work together. When Johnny wanted to borrow the car on Friday night, everyone got involved in the conversation because it's the car. When Jill wants to go to college, everyone gets involved because if she goes to college, our lives are all gonna change. And they learned interdependence. They often shared a bathroom in the morning. They often uh, had summer jobs and shared you know, the environment at home. They learned, they didn't like it, but they knew about each other. They, they, to know and to be known is a very foundational human characteristic and they did know each other better. Well, if somebody in that family succeeds, they wanna get away from all that hardship. And if they fi have financial success, they wanna use that money and very often do to build independence in their family instead of interdependence. They give their children their own bedroom, their own bathroom, private school, summer camp, fewer opportunities to interact. They love each other, but they actually don't know each other as well. Their dinner table conversations are more social. How's your golf game? How's your tennis game? So what we're basically doing when we get together with families is, and we tell them this, and it's our mission statement at GenLeg, our mission is to introduce and reintroduce the family to itself repeatedly with metrics to measure results and success. And that's really the crux is that's the major. The major is they don't know each other as well as they could. And to change culture, changing it from the inside out is very difficult. They often need somebody to help them start the process of changing culture, see the vision, and then help them start the roadmap to get there. So that's a little how we do it. Love it. I, you know, it's funny when, you, when you're talking about that, I'm working with a family right now that it's their very, you know, it's the transition from generation two to generation three, which is where a lot of these things start to show themselves, right? And what they, you know, we're setting up a family meeting um, and the family's getting together for a weekend. And, you know, we're just doing three, a, a three hour session and, you know, they're like, we know how to do a picnic. We know how to do a family reunion. What are you guys getting in the middle of this for? And so one of the things that, you know, we had to explain to all members of the family is why. And it's, you know, you know how to do all of the, the fun stuff, but it's that getting to know each other piece. There are people that don't know each other because people have married into the family. We don't know where their family came from. We don't know what their background is. And, uh, you, you know, it's time to reintroduce each ourselves. I love what you're saying. I think that's just a great way of saying it, Tom. Hmm. John, so when you're thinking about these things and, you know, the, the major on the majors and the, the tough times are upon us. And, you, you know, I, one of the things I love about both of you guys is that you both did some, you know, spent time doing research and studying these things. What did, uh, what came out of the, the things that you're, you know, that you've looked at through the years? Yeah, so back in 07, when we hired our uh, initial uh, researchers, uh, we identified the six reasons why wealth transfers fail. And uh, as 
as Tom mentioned, none of them have to do with the finances. So the number one issue that we identified is communication and the lack thereof. So we break it down in our digital system and our technology, we literally break it down step by step. Uh, we start with what is meaningful communication? Define what that means. Well, it's open, it's honest, it's respectful, you're listening, right? So let's establish the ground rules of what meaningful communication is. Uh, and then we take the family through a number of our um, exercises in our technology to identify their social styles, identify how they prefer to communicate, how the others in their family prefer to communicate, and identify those styles and then learn what the positives and negatives of each style is and how you can adapt your communication to reduce conflict, increase the level of meaningful communication. So number one would be communication. That's, that's, that's majoring in the majors. Uh, that is the lifeblood of a successful wealth transfer and the hundreds of families that we've consulted. Um, that is where we start. And um, they also, my clients will get tired of me here saying that communication is a process, not an event, something that you need to continually work on. Um, so every single family meeting that we do uh, and in between in our exercises, we're always focusing on communication. But some of the other things are shared vision. You know, a lot of our research indicated the next generation felt dictated to. They wanted to have a voice in what the vision of the family was. Um, and so we all know that we don't re react very well when we're dictated to, but when we engage those and they feel that they have a voice. So that's one thing we do. We get the family having a conversation. We spark that meaningful dialogue after creating the focus on communication. Now what are we going to communicate? Well, let's communicate together about creating a shared vision because that's to engage the next generation. Um, but specifically for family businesses, which we consult a lot with, uh, we take an approach of providing system and process, not only through our technology, but taking an approach of beginning with the end in mind, working inside out. What is the impact we want the family business to have on the family? And once we decide that, we can then have more clarity about how to properly manage the business asset. So um, as far as, as, far as you know, majoring in the majors, I would say communication, shared vision, uh, working inside out, and certainly having system process and, and, and making it consistent, getting everybody into a rhythm. Um, you know, what we do is we spend 30 minutes a month with each one of our clients and they know every, every month they're spending 30 minutes with one of our 37 advisors to be able to move that conversation along. Um, and that touching them every month really creates a rolling thunder of momentum. And then you have the family meeting, which is just an enormous explosion of, of, of communication. Um, but that's where we start. That's how we major in the majors is focusing on that communication vision and system and process. Great. You know, it's, you, you talk about the, be, the begin with the end in mind or working. What did you say from the inside, outside, inside in, out, yeah. outside yeah. in, yeah. Outside. Working, in, working inside out. And I, and I do have to give credit to Lee Brower. Lee Brower from Empowered Wealth is, is a friend of mine. I think that's his term. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's his term. Sure. Uh, I, they, I know Lee from uh, Strategic Coach. Yeah, that, 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 yeah I, I, that's how I met Lee was through Strategic Coach in, in, in Chicago. Um, you, you know, so, so, so that's, a, that's a big part of how we approach it. Um, and obviously, we have a tremendous focus on governance. We have an entire project dedicated to governance. Um, and, and that element also is something that I think the, the successful families look at. How are we going to resolve disputes? How are we going to make decisions? Let's do it proactively, not reactively, before we have emotional damage. And, and we need to bring in Tom Rogerson's wife <laughs> to help us out. Um, so, yeah, for, for, for sure, that's a big part of, of, of how we approach it. Wonderful. Yeah, I'll give you an example of um, how some of this can come together in a family um, we had a chance to do some things with the Green family of Hobby Lobby fame. And um, when uh, we met with them over a three-day period of time in, in Oklahoma City, we met with Mart the first day, the son, one of the sons. 
And Mart was talking about the fact that they have a family meeting every month and everybody comes and they uh, take it really seriously and they, they have a celebration of everybody had a birthday that month and they, but I don't mean just birthday cake and a hat and everything. They, uh, they really acknowledge each other and they talk to about what do I respect about you and like about you and, and, you know, really, they really spend time and they do some philanthropy during that monthly meeting and all. And it just sounded, the team building activities that they uh, do are really profound. And uh, so the next day I was talking to David Green and David said, you know, we've only had three family meetings in the history of my family business. And I said, David, wait a minute. Yesterday, Mart said, you have a family meeting every month. He said, oh yeah, he's talking about the meetings where we focus on building strong family. I'm talking about the meetings where we talked about money in the business. They only talked about money in the business three times. And I can tell you what those were later, but, that, but they're really uh, powerful. Um, but he said the three meetings where we focused on the business and the money and what we had to do, tra you know, transformative things we had to do in the business, those went well because of the monthly meetings. The third day I had a chance to meet with one of the granddaughters and her new husband. She'd been married a little bit more than six months. And her new husband was saying, this family's incredible. I can't believe how connected I already feel. Months before I got married, uh, they were inviting me to their family meeting, and they know me well. I know them well. I'm, I feel really connected. And then he said something that I think is one of the best lines I've ever heard. He said, in those meetings, we build the bridge of trust and grace so we can drive the truck of truth over it. And, and that, to me, is really the – talk about a foundational issue. Um, communication is really important. But the biggest reason that families say they fail is due to lack of trust around group decision-making. And so how do you build trust? And they do it very intentionally on a monthly meeting basis. And, um, and that it's those kinds of activities we're trying to bring in. How do you build trust? Because the natural tendency is for people to triangulate. If I've got a problem with my brother, rather than go to my brother, I'd go to my wife and talk to her about what, what she thinks. Now I get support, now I've got a union. Before I had a belief, now I'm right, because she agrees. And so I've just caused a problem with my wife's relationship with my brother, and she doesn't even talk to him about these things. How do we help families get around that? And that's what my wife and I, when we get together with families, we really need to, that is a major, that when we get together with the family, we've got to focus on how do we get them being able and willing to speak truth to each other and get into a place of safety where they can do that so that they, they can communicate. Yeah, and that makes so much sense. And when you think about, you know, the, the three circle model that was, you know, that came up years ago, um, you know, the family, the business and, and ownership. Right. Um, and it gets so complicated. And the reason why it gets so complicated is that communication and trust. When we just have the business and I can go home and I don't have to worry about those people that I work with. And, you know, we can, you know, the really great businesses, they get really good at communication, right? Um, and, and we know that from studies over and over again. But within the family, we have those dynamics that go back to the time when, remember when, you know, you stole my Barbie doll and smashed it up and, you know, all of the things that have happened for, for years that make it so much more difficult to kind of, you know, peel back the onion and get to the truth. As you said, you know, I love that analogy of we need to build, what did it say that again, build the bridge of 
grace and trust so we can drive the truck of truth over it. And I just love that. That is a, and I've got so many families focusing on doing exactly that same thing. Phenomenal. Um, so when, again, so let, let's just kind of summarize these things. If you had to go through, um, Sean, you know, there's the, the majors, you said there were six things that everybody should be focusing on. Let's hit those six things from your perspective. And then Tom, if there's anything that you want to add to those, that would be help, helpful. Well, so I mean, we, we, we identified six reasons why wealth, why wealth transfers fail. Uh, it, that's it, what it was. Yeah. yeah. So gosh, let me go through them all. Um, lack of meaningful communication, lack of transparency, lack of trust, lack of a shared vision, lack of system of process and lack of governance are the six reasons why wealth transfers fail. And that's why we created our technology and we created projects around each one of them. One is values, where we have five deliveries focused on values. One's legacy, one's governance, one's gratitude, which is our philanthropic, um, which is our philanthropic project. So we built those around those pillars as to why wealth transfers fail so we can mitigate that risk you know, for families as best we can. Love it. Tom, anything and, 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 and at the same time though, and at the same time, which I think is critically important, not only help them mitigate the reasons why wealth transfers fail, but fit that busy, socially distanced, geographically dispersed uh, lifestyle. Uh, we, we have found lots of ways in our 13 years to make family meetings more efficient, more impactful, and, and, um, and more purposeful as we've gone through the years. And we continue to fine tune and, and, and use those, but moving everybody towards that family meeting um, which really is that wonderful blast of communication that you referenced earlier. Perfect. Tom, anything to add to the majors? Well, I think one of the big majors um, that many of the entrepreneurs <clears throat> are particularly interested in is, that, is the notion that entrepreneurs recognize they grew up in an entrepreneurial incubator. That interdependent environment that I was describing of a working class background is an incubator for entrepreneurship. And that's a culture that's quite different because those very same people that grew up in an entrepreneurial incubator raised their children in an entrepreneurial kill zone. And they don't know why, they, they don't know differently. And so to help them understand how to reintroduce an entrepreneurial incubator mentality, an entrepreneur, we call it having an, um, a familyness culture linked to an entrepreneurial mindset. And what would that look like? Because that is a, a very different dynamic. Um, the, uh, at, I'm doing, I'm creating, a, teaching a course at Gordon College on family governance, this very topic. But that's a major portion of the course is how do you create an entrepreneurial environment and, and uh, decision-making process at home? Because uh, as was said earlier, the, the crux of the issue, the number one biggest reason that families fail is due to lack of trust around group decision-making. And yet, if we build an independent family that is separates and, uh, and doesn't know each other as well as they could, those are the very same people that are theoretically going to take over the family business when mom and dad are gone, but they have no experience at working together. So we're trying to reintroduce. Um, it, to me, it's that families often are focusing on avoiding conflict and they avoid, avoid, avoid until it explodes in their face. Well, how do you set an actual process of practicing and managing conflict? So when something of more significant consequence comes to bear, you can handle it. And that's exactly what the Greens are doing on those monthly meetings. They're creating the, the bridge of trust. So when they have the major crises, they actually can communicate in a trusting, honest way and get to that place of transparency. So, um, but they are a very entrepreneurial mentality in their family. 
And that's a culture most families don't know how to do. Got it. From there, you know, I, I, we've hit on them several times. We talk talking about the family meetings. Um, let's let's dive dive into family meetings a little bit more. Um, you know, why are these why are family meetings a necessity? Um, and what are the what are the aspects? What are the what are the right tools? What are the right things that have to be done in order to conduct a meaningful family meeting? Tom, why don't you? kick that off if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. Um, basically, in, in the surveys we've done and the studies we've looked at as well, uh, families that are having family meetings succeed and families that are not having family meetings don't. I mean, if you wanna fail, don't have family meetings. And a family meeting is not where you talk about the money, it's where you focus on building that sense of who we are as a family. So, um, you know, that's like the Greens, I, I love that. They had three family meetings where they talked about the money and they have monthly ones for years that they uh, focus on the family. But um, what we created was a six step process to help them get started in family meetings. I, for years, I had people that would come to the presentations I was doing and they would take copious notes, these you know, husbands and wives, and they'd write down all these ideas and they'd come up and clarify them, make sure they're really set. And, um, and, and I, later on, I figured out what they're, what they're doing. They're taking all these notes to go home and implement these things to their family. Well, they may have the right message, but they're the wrong messenger. And so what we came to realize is they often need somebody else to come in and help them get started. So we created what we call the six-step process to healthy family governance. And the, the six steps are what we take a family through in the family meeting process. Step one actually happens before the meeting. We do an assessment of, of everybody in the family. Uh, we give them a series of statements that they read, like our family makes decisions really effectively where everybody feels heard and seen. Okay, on one side of the page, how important is that, that statement for your family to accomplish? And on the other side of the page, how well are you doing at it right now? They send all those to us, we tabulate them, and then we have a chance when we come to the family meeting to share with them by your own admission, here's where the biggest gaps are that you as a family say you want to work on. These are really important items that you're not doing as effective job as you'd like. So let's focus on those because of the ones relevant to you. So that's step one, the assessment. Step two is when we get to the family meeting, the education process. They need to understand why our family's failing as a group. So there's a level playing field. And during that education process, we share them the results of the assessment. Third step is we do think that they need a leadership style assessment of how they approach a topic, that communication issue that ta Sean was talking about. I approach the world differently. I see it differently and I say what I saw differently. And very often what you disagree with about me is not what we're arguing about, it's how we're arguing about it that was causing the disagreement. So we take them through an assessment so they can learn how to do that differently. And then we take them through a style shifting exercise. The fourth step is a values exercise. What do we believe in? What do I believe in? And where are the shared uh, uh, values attributes um, to come up with? And sometimes a shared value by most people is divisive to the rest. Well, how do you, make, how do you handle that? What do you do with that? All of this leads to them having a, starting to come up with as a group action steps. What can we do about it? And the final step is then how do we put a plan around this where the estate plan actually takes into account the purpose of the family as articulated and created by the family meeting process. Uh, and the, the last piece of that was a number of years ago, a, a, an attorney named Marvin Blum and I thought, you know, one thing we're seeing in families that are succeeding, they're not only doing family meetings, they're endowing the process. 
And we created a trust structure called a FAST, Family Advancement Sustainability Trust. And we wrote an article in the Trust in the States magazine um, a number of years ago, two, three years ago about this. And it's really a trust to endow the family meeting process because the idea is if we're doing family meetings and they're going really well, when mom and dad are gone, the family will keep doing it. Wasn't happening because there, we went from one couple organizing and paying it for, for, for three, to three couples maybe now with three kids organizing and they weren't doing it. They were saying, I got other things to do, I'm busy. But if it was endowed, they were highly likely to keep doing it because if one of them couldn't do it this year, the other two are saying, hey, we'll miss you, but we're spending your share on this year's meeting. <laughs> and I uh, guess who wanted to be there the next year, all three. And uh, so endowing the meeting turned out to be really important as well. Um, but that's what we think a family meeting process should look like. Our role is to work our way out of a job. We want them to pick up the ball and run with it. But we find that usually takes two or three meetings before they're ready to do, to do that. Love it. You know, it's, I'll share with you, uh, the Columbus family does Columbus family vacation and we've been doing it now for 20 years and we have, I have siblings, we were all over the country and we would get together. And so the cousins could meet, you know, spend time together as we were doing things. Um, when I talked about the, that next level of communication, my father was like, no, 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 this is, this is just vacation. This is, you know, we're not adding any of that fluffy stuff in, Mike. Um, and, um, uh, but on the other hand, he did endow PFV, as we call it, Columbus Family Vacation. So that will be endowed for many, many generations. And so one of the conversations I had with the family was, if we don't learn to communicate, even though the money's there, do you think that we'll continue to do a good job of deciding how to make these things happen. And so this year we have a, a, a specialist coming in for PFV to talk about disc profiles and, and, and communication systems and you know how, how that works uh, within our family. So we're taking the one out of, out of your page. I yeah, appreciate that. Um, Sean, you, you know, have a, a, your system is all designed for Family, family meetings. Why don't you walk us through, you know, you, again, the, you have the six different pieces to that. Tell us some more about the, how that works to make those family meetings, you know, um, meaningful and much easier to conduct, you know, to conduct. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've, Tom and I are, are old friends. We've had this conversation and I respectfully disagree with a little bit of his business model. A lot of that work, assessments, explaining why we're together, uh, we do ahead of time. So, so we noticed a few things. I interviewed Roy Williams back in 2007, God rest his soul. And um, I talked to him about some of the things that he found when we identified the reasons why wealth transfers fail and family meetings, like Justice Tom absolutely correctly um, alluded to, are the best way to help mitigate wealth transfer failure and attack those six reasons. Um, I, I interviewed Roy for some time and asked him, you know, what, what are some of the things that you'd like to see better happen with with family meetings. And he highlighted that much of the next generation comes in very guarded, not understanding exactly what they're going to be doing during that time. Um, they don't really feel like they've had a lot of input. And he was, him and I had a very extended conversation um, over a course of several, uh, uh, several um, uh, months as to how we can get the next generation more engaged right out of the gate. So what we've done uh, actually is we, we, before we even engage with a family, we complete our digital assessment and it's 40 questions. It tells us where they're weak, where they're strong, 
Um, so we've just, we know exactly what their baseline is, if they even have a need for our More Than Money 360 platform. So we start with that before we even engage with them. Um, so we complete that assessment and then they say, yep, let's go. So the first thing we do then is we get the entire family together on a Zoom meeting. Again, we are, we're very attractive to that busy geographically dispersed family. So we do a lot through online meetings and we have since 2012. So uh, we get everybody on a Zoom meeting, we have a presentation we do. We call it More Than Money, the what, the why, the how. What the heck is it? Why the heck should I care? And how, and how are we gonna do this? So we get the family on the same page from the very beginning as to why they're even embarking on this journey, on this conversation. What the heck is it? Why is it important? Well, you're gonna lose all your money. Your family unity is gonna break. You know, you, the, the intangible assets of the family is gonna be gone. And then how are we gonna do it? Well, we're gonna invest 30 minutes a month, which is what we immediately go into after that presentation. And depending on which of our projects we're on, we spend 30 minutes, we identify a social style, we identify the core values, we identify the shared core values. Um, we set a three-year vision. And we do all of this prior to walking into the family meeting. The other thing that we do that, that um, I think really just lowers the guard a lot is after our four 30 minute consultation in one of our projects, we propose a, um, an agenda for the family meeting and we show it to little Johnny, we show it to little Susie, we get, his or, we get all their input, we show it to mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, whoever's, whoever's invited to the family meeting gets equal input as to what's on that agenda. So that, that gets buy-in, that gets engagement. So then when we walk into the family meeting, we've done all the assessments, we've done all the pre-work, and now we have an agenda where we can sit down, eyes up, and communicate, look one another in the eye, uh, and, and, and really have an impactful family meeting. So we do a lot of pre-work, uh, really we take a very practical approach. If you have an important meeting, whether it's at work, church, family, you prepare for it. Um, and that's what our technology allows us to do. And, and, and that's a big, a big way that we're a little bit different. We completely concur that the family meeting is essential to multi-generational success, um, but we just prepare for it a little bit different way. And, and, and we try to keep our family meetings shorter and far more impactful, four or five, maybe six hours max, um, and leave with a lot of clarity and momentum as we jump into the, as we jump into the next project. Great. You know, and that's one of the nice things about the world that we live in is, you know, we can have different ways of doing things um, and, and still be effective in, in what we're doing. Um, I love, sure. you know, I, Sean, I, I love your software. Um, Thank you. And as we've talked about it before, have not had a, the, the ability to tap into it and, I think I just found a way that that might, might happen. And I think for some families Great. that that is going to be super powerful to, to, to deal with. The flip side of that though, is I, I do, you know, I found some families that unless you sit them down and bring them together and make these things happen um, without, you know, they're, they're not going to show up for the 30 minute meetings that, to, to invest those things. They need that, that big reason to all be there um, and I think Tom's, you know, method of doing that brings a lot of those families together. I've got one in my head that I'm just thinking about. And if I ask them to show up for a 30 minute meeting once a month, I'm going to get about 50% buy-in. Nobody's going to do the work. And, um, I really need them to, you know, to do things differently. We don't have that problem at all. Cause we set the expectation in that initial zoom meeting where we go through the, what, the, why, the, how. Um, that this is what we need from you. And I, I will say, I, I need approximately eight hours from you over six months. If investing eight hours over six months, including the family meeting, 
um, is too much time for you to invest back into family unity, creating a shared vision, et cetera, then, then you know, this isn't for you. Um, but if you can spare eight hours over six months, then, then we're going to make a tremendous amount of progress. I, I have a family meeting July 2nd with a family that engaged with us June 26th. And we had a meeting yesterday to finalize the agenda. And we look back over the year and, and they can't believe the agenda, I mean, excuse me, the progress they've made in a year because we take this baby step approach. You take a, take a thousand baby steps, you look over your shoulder and you've walked a mile. Uh, and, and that's a big part of how we do it. So um, we have tremendous engagement on those 30 minute consultations because it's also convenient. I have the next generation that will do it. If they're walking down the street in Manhattan headed to a meeting. Um, you know, my rule is I don't care what you're doing as long as, as, long as you're clothed <laughs> and you give me 30 minutes of, of, uh, of focus a month. That's, that's all I care about. Or keep your camera off either way. But um, no, we, we, we have tremendous engagement on the 30 minute consultations because I think once families go through our process, they realize how much, how impactful um, the, that time is when we get to the family meeting, we really hit the ground running with, with guards down and, and communication up. So um, yeah, we, we, well, we, we, have a, we have a lot of engagement on, on those at this point. Great. And maybe it's, you know, as we all say, we come to everything that we do with our own biases. So maybe it's just, you know, <laughs> by, you know my biases in terms of looking at the family and how I think that they learn. Tom, yeah, is that sure. your family behind you now? Yeah, you, you uh, prompted uh, this. You had mentioned the vacation thing because we float a number of ideas at a family meeting because we want the next generation to buy into the idea. But one of the top ideas that the next generation often buy into that they want, and then they own it, but was this idea of a family vacation. And we started this years ago with our family. We gave our children a budget and, um, and we let them uh, plan a vacation. And after they planned it, they would then invite us my wife and me to go on the vacation that they planned. And, uh, you know, I don't want to let them control my retirement account. And if I owned a business, I don't want them jumping into running a business yet. But um, what's the worst thing that they could do if they plan a vacation? And this last year, this is the uh, vacation they planned um, on budget. Uh, and we went to Costa Rica. And on this is Christmas Day, we were taking surf lessons. They lined the whole thing up and they invited us to go. It was That's really awesome. funny. It was they, they got round trip tickets from Boston to Costa Rica for $200 per person. Wow. We have a friend from a close town in Hingham that um, they spent more than our family spent on our entire family per person to get them to down to Costa Rica uh, for the same week that we were there. So they did, they learned a ton, they, but they've done this over time. They've learned a ton about each other and how to do things. And the reason this often comes across better floated by an outsider. I'll give you an example in the philanthropic area. I was uh, going to do a family meeting for a family and I was talking to the parents ahead of time and I asked them, hey, is there an amount of money you'd like them to give to charity or you'd be willing to let them give to charity uh, that I could talk about? And they said, yeah, we've talked, we thought about that on the way here. We want them to give away about $30,000 a year out of our foundation. And I said, great, would you let me float that number at the meeting? And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We thought about that too. We, we actually, you're going to love this, Tom, they said. Um, we're going to put that, we're going to engrave that number in wood and we're going to wrap it up in a box and put a ribbon over it. We're going to give it to them as our gift. I mean, they're, we're going to have tissues out. Everyone's going to be, it's going to be really powerful. So I talked to them about it and they finally said, wow, you're right. That would be a bad idea, wouldn't it? And I said, yeah, I think that'd be a bad idea. <laughs> and, uh, and because- Why, what they why is that a bad idea? Because what they recognize, if they wrap that number up and put it in a box, who chose the number? Who chose the number? Yeah. We but if, what to do. 
if I get to float the number and say, what about your family? What if your parents had, I don't know, $30,000 when you give to charity? Could you do anything meaningful with that? And watch the children sit up and look at the parents like, hey, would you be willing? And the, the parents are able to sit back and say, hey, guys, it's a lot of money. We'd love to, but could you do anything meaningful? To watch the children try and convince the parents that they ought to invest this $30,000, same number we're trying to get to, but how we get them where they want to go, we think is as important as where we're trying to get them. And so um, that's where an outsider can do these things. I'm not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes, but how these ideas are, we want the children, we call it B-O-E, buy-in to ownership to empowerment. If we can float the ideas and they choose it, they own it. If they own it, they're empowered by it. And ultimately, where we're trying to get families, the reason we call this whole title, Strong Families Survive Tough Times, to, to feel known and to know others and to feel connected and a sense of place and purpose creates a much higher sen a a sense of resilience in people. No matter what the struggles are they face with, they can get through them. And to hear the history of the family, to know what our family has gotten through before. How did grandma and grandpa get through the depression? How did they get through the world wars? How did they get through the loss of a, a child? To, to have a family that knows those things and, and allows them to individually be more resilient today and more resilient as a family. And it's those activities. So this looks like a lot of fun in the background, but in reality, it's what makes the difference. And the families that have grown independent to the point of estrangement haven't built the interdependence that we're trying to reintroduce the family in this process we take families through. Love it. Thank you. Um, Sean, do you, just an example or, you know, a story without, you know, names or families or whatnot, but could you just, you know, kind of guide us through, you know, maybe some of, some of the examples of things that you've done with families and, you know, how the, what the reactions were. That specifically, give me a little, a little more specific. I guess I would go through um, a success story using the software. What are some of the things that you saw coming, you know, as families were building upon these things? What, what are some of your favorite stories to share with other, other families? Well, I think one of the biggest things is a lot of families want to have this conversation. They don't know how to have this conversation, just as Tom alluded to. And if you look at the data and research, at least the data and research that we've done, they're looking for someone from the outside to provide that process structure and that spark. Um, and that's really, that's really what we do through our technology and not, and not only through, and obviously through our family meetings, is provide that system process and, and spark. Um, we, you know, we, we have families that are blended, that um, are recently blended, that have hired us to kind of come together as one family. We, you know, so the 28 families we have now, I think a good eight or nine of them are blended. A larger number of them are family businesses trying to figure out exactly how to liquidate the family business. They realized little Johnny was not interested in the business, but maybe little Susie was, and, and that really uh, surprised, su surprised them. Uh, one company in specific, they, 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 uh, they were really surprised. And, and uh, you know, part of this is that this can be a self-realization and also a family realization process. Um, just like they realized the daughter was more interested in the family business than the son, uh, that happens almost with every single family we engage in. They learn something about a family member that they didn't know. Um, so there, there's lots of success stories from elevating communication. We also are uh, we also coined the term active gratitude. We think stroking a check is incredibly generous, but what's in the best interest of your family multi generationally? is actively participating in philanthropic events together, getting your hands dirty. I have one family who um, 
one of their one element of their shared philanthropic vision is is animals and there was a 5k run or whatever it was and they volunteered to hand out water bottles to the run and they just got real silly you know save fido you know they throw somebody about a runner about this is for garfield you know they just they still talk about this day they did it seven years ago um, and they still joke about it but that's a wonderful way to teach that wealth is a social responsibility to teach gratitude over entitlement um, and also to create shared experiences of value and, and, and strengthen that family unity. Um, so we have we have lots of success stories. I guess the biggest success story is we have 100% client retention rate since 2012. So folks keep coming back. We're doing something right, but um, but but for each family, it's different. What what that success is because each have different goals, each have different different visions. So we've seen them. We've seen those successes manifest in a number of different ways. Uh, over our years of, of working with that. Love it. Yeah, I don't think you can go much further than 100%. Um, We're so, proud of that for sure. We're proud good of that for, you. for sure. Love it. We, um, and something you said kind of, you know, um, pairs off of, you know, the creating that, that mindset, that the, the family entrepreneurial mindset that um, I do, you know, I, I would, I do believe that that makes such a big difference, Tom, when you, you know, you give us that picture of the, you know, one generation is, you know, the, the they're scrapping their way to the top and we want to make it easier for the next generation. Um, and what you're actually doing is, you know, taking away a lot of, you know, the things that got you there in the first place. Um, Take a second to, you know, what are some of the other things? Why do, why do most entrepreneurs fail at doing it? Um, you know, what, is the, what are the biggest issues there? Um, I think the, the biggest thing that I run into is that they are in a, they're in that conflict avoidance modality. So they're not really dealing with these issues and they're letting their children just kind of grow on their own um, as opposed to really intentionally raising the, the creating that environment of entrepreneurship. Um, they want their children to take control of the business. Interestingly, because if you talk to the children, the children want to take control of the business, but the, but the two of them never communicate about it effectively. So they don't. And um, so I think that, um, we're, we're finding like the entrepreneurship issue is um, particularly of interest for, you know, the entrepreneurs that we're dealing with are saying uh, in many cases, gee, we, we feel like so many people say to us, hey, you built your business. Now it's time for you to do good. You ought to start doing philanthropic work. And they're often saying, no, no, no. I built the business, I'm providing jobs for people, I'm providing self-esteem, I'm growing communities, I'm already doing good. These people are also very philanthropic, but how do I get my children to recognize the importance of taking over this business to take care of these, this ecosystem I've created? And so that whole notion of entrepreneurship to me is, is really um, you know, a critical one. And the culture of it, I do some work at Babson College and the course I'm teaching right now at, at, at Gordon College, is on that notion of how do you create an entrepreneurial culture? And it's different than, than most parents would automatically create. And so we view it that we're in that entrepreneurial endeavor coming up with lots of activities that we let the children engage in so they can start to make decisions, learn how to make decisions at these lower levels uh, that have consequence so they can work their way up to the bigger decisions over time. Um, the vision we use on this is kind of think of railroad tracks going off into the distance. As railroad tracks go off into the distance, it looks like if they, if they go out a hundred miles, it looks like they come together eventually at the horizon, at the vanishing point. 
Well, that kind of creates three different things going on. We have the right-hand rail, which to us is the family business and running the money and taking care of the assets. There's the left-hand rail, which is focusing on the family. And there are cross ties that bind. The cross ties that bind are the activities they can do to help people transition from the family activities to the business activities. And they're very meaningful, family philanthropy, family vacation planning, family meeting agenda planning, fam all kinds of activities that can be the cross ties between the activity of building the sense of family and the activities of working on the business. That's an entrepreneurial incubator structure that we're talking about, leading people through activities to get to the business side of the equation over time. I don't know if that's helpful, but. No, I, I, I love that. And I think that's, you know, one <laughs> of the things that if I, I look back at Columbus Family Vacation that we haven't done enough of is, you know, mom and dad have pretty much done most of the planning. And there's a lot of things, you know, that, that we can do differently. Um, and tonight we have uh, a Zoom meeting where we're creating our first set of committees to allow you know, other people to do pieces of the planning and kind of break it up into different groups. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Mom and it was their baby. You know what I mean? So for them, it was like, kind of like the business when you think about it, it's that, you know, they didn't want to give it up. Right. And uh, they endowed it so that it would stay there. But if we don't know how to talk about it, if we don't know how to, to, you know, make these things happen ourselves, what's going to, what's going to happen when they're not here. Mm-hmm. Sean, when we talk about family entrepreneurial mindset and, you know, like you said, you're dealing with a lot of family business, businesses yourself. What does that mean to you? Where do you, where do you see, you know, how, you know, I, I mean, I can, I can immediately see how MTM, you know, 360 would do some of those things, but do you want to spark on that a little bit or noodle on that with us? Well, in our Governance 360 project, uh, one of the deliverables is the family bank that we use to incentivize uh, entrepreneurship that is consistent with the family core values, the shared core values, and the shared vision that we've already established in the previous projects. So we want to incentivize that entrepreneurship from the next generation, whether it's, you know, starting a lemonade stand and you need to write it on a piece of paper and crayon, like just get in the habit of presenting your ideas, why it's important, the impact you want to make, and um, and, and getting them to think that way at a very young age, uh, you know, what are your supplies? What are your costs? What are your, you know, just getting them to think um, as business folks uh, as soon as we can. So one, we incentivize it through our governance uh, project and, and governance entities, which I think is always uh, very helpful. Then obviously it can continue to grow and get more serious as, uh, as the next generation gets older. But we try to establish that from the very beginning at a minimum establishing the family bank um, gives a mechanism and, and, and again, uh, incentivizes the next generation to think entrep in an entrepreneurial way, in an entrepreneur way, excuse me. Um, so so the, the, that's the way that, that we approach it. We very much approach governance from being a proactive versus reactive uh, stance. Now we can get a lot more uh, positive results if we're proactive about governance and being reactive to a problem or an issue that we're concerned with. Um, being reactive, we still have a ton, we still have we still have success, obviously, doing that. Um, but it's our preference to to try to attack these issues from a proactive perspective, so we can mitigate uh, any potential strife and also encourage the behaviors that we want to encourage. Um, and that's a big part of integrating our values with our valuables. And we do a lot of that in our Legacy 360 project. And, and, and that's a big part of, okay, we want to incentivize specific, purposeful, positive behaviors from the next generation that are consistent with our core values, our shared vision, our family legacy mission statement that would help families create and write. 
um, so that we can so that we can then get those behaviors from the next generation. So um, we integrate values with valuables. We integrate values with with the actual planning, and we certainly have a specific governance instrument dedicated to entrepreneurship and encouraging that entrepreneurship and getting the next generation to think like entrepreneurs uh, from from a very young age. So so that that's our approach and and how we attack it. Love it. Let me just, you use the word family bank. And I, mm -hmm. I think some of the people listening will hear that and say, what in the world is that? Mm -hmm. So in, in, you would spend a second to talk about that if you don't mind. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's just a trust. And, and um, the, the trust has certain parameters as to when it will loan money to one of the family members for a business idea it sets forth criteria that the, that the uh, potential business needs to meet um fun things not fun things but impactful things like okay you're gonna you're gonna um, donate 25 percent of your profits to fill in the blank charity and 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 things that are required from the family bank that again are consistent with the core values the, the family vision and so forth so we integrate those into the documents we put some assets inside that trust that are available to be loaned for entrepreneurial ideas that again are consistent with the uh, terms set forth in the document uh, so so that's it's it's just a it's just a trust that um, has specific language in it to encourage entrepreneurship but responsible purposeful entrepreneurship um, and, and again, we talk a lot of that about, we do a lot of work with the UN and the sustainable development goals and integrating that into their finances. We don't manage the money. We don't do any of the financial stuff, no product or, or investments or anything along those lines. We just do the MTM 360 piece, but we spark that conversation so that their team of professional advisors um, can integrate that into their existing planning as well as the entrepreneurship piece as well. Great. I, I remember the first time I heard the term family bank and um, just was like, didn't make any sense. So I appreciate you kind of d describing that for, uh, for sure. everybody here. In, yeah. In I, some, I, I, the first time one of the family members that I was working with in, in a family in Chicago heard of the idea, they, uh, one of the cousins was complaining to his, his, his other cousin that, um, gee, we need a hockey rink in this town. It'd be so much easier because, you know, the, if you're a young kid on a hockey team, the ice time is usually at a rink about three towns away at five o'clock in the morning. And he was like, we need a rink in this town. It'd be so much easier. And he said, his cousin said, that's a good investment. You ought to bring it to the family bank. And he said, what's a family bank? He says, well, grandpa set up this trust and Uncle Joe, he's the chairman of it, and they're looking for investment. That's an investment. You got to bring them. So this little kid goes to Uncle Joe, says, Uncle Joe, I think we ought to invest in this uh, hockey rink. Uncle Joe says, great idea. Where's your business plan? And this 14-year-old kid says, what's a business plan? Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. And he yeah. paired that kid up with an uncle and aunt to write a business plan. So he, he, they yeah. said they were teaching two, two generations at the same time how to write a business plan. Um, but he came back and he came to the family meeting to give his presentation, a financial rite of passage for a 14-year-old in that family. How many families have a financial rite of passage for a 14-year-old? Right. And he decided not to invest in the hockey rink because he heard other people talking about rate of return. He's like, rate of return? What's that? I just want a hockey rink. And, uh, but it was a great lesson. What's interesting is that he was learning by doing, and, and that's really the crux of when I say entrepreneurship, what's an entrepreneurial mentality? Entrepreneurs are people that tend to do to learn. Mid-level managers that seem to never be able to rise and, and get out of their way are people that need, feel like they need to learn to be able to do. So they get degrees and all, and they learn in a shaped environment. It's very hard to be entrepreneurial if you've learned in a shaped environment because entrepreneurship is very unshaped. It's very, so how do you create an environment of doing to learn? And these are all examples of 
when I say, you know, creating an entrepreneurial mentality, how do you do that? Um, most entrepreneurship programs in the country are not actually teaching entrepreneurship. They're teaching mid-level management of small companies. You know, once you have an idea, how do you finance it? And then how do you run it? And how do you manage resources? And how do you hire people and fire people? And then how do you have an exit strategy? That's small business management. That's not entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is think of a circle with four parts to it with a middle donut. And the four parts are the practice of play. Do I have a free and imaginative mind? You can teach these things. The practice of empathy. If I get to the airport and there's a two hour line for security, do I just get in it and play Sudoku? Or, or do I think that's a problem? And actually, you know, and, and what do I see the problems in society? How do I look for those and see them and be more open-minded about that? Thirdly, the practice of, uh, of, of creation, creating a solution to this problem that hopefully you've seen that, you know, in your free and imaginative mind. And then finally, the, or the fourth one, fourth corner of that is the practice of experimentation. Can I try and fail? Is that okay? And learn and try and fail and learn and try and fail. Oh, and succeed. And then the middle, middle of the donut is the practice of reflection. So we're constantly looking at those things. If a family has that mentality about everything that they're embarking upon, they are working and thinking very differently, communicating differently, but they're in an environment of trust and, and relationship around group decision-making. And that to me is, again, you started with major in the majors, we're ending with major and major. That's majoring the majors and getting to the right place, hopefully effectively. Love it, thank you. Hey, we're, we're, we're rough, running out of time here. Any parting words from either of you that you'd like to share? And then um, if you would share how people can reach out and, and contact you if they, if they would like to. Tom, Tom go ahead, buddy. Sure. Um, yeah, you can reach us at uh, GenLegCo for Generational Legacy Company, GenLegCo, G-E-N-L-E-G-C-O.com. That's our website. Uh, I am Tom at GenLegCo. My wife is Kathy with a C at GenLegCo. She's a relationship coach. Um, and so she is the one that I do the kind of big picture work in the education. She actually dives into how are we going to get Johnny and Mary actually being able to communicate uh, on the hard issues together one-on-one. -on -one. And, um, and so uh, that's how you reach us. Great. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. So for me, it's Sean, S-H-A-W-N at NTM, just like that. There's a hyphen in between and then 360, MTM-360, Sean at mtm360.com. Phone number is 410-928-7420, 410-928-7420. So thank you. I appreciate both of your time. This was great. I, uh, like I always say, I wish I could do you know three hours of this, but I don't think uh, most people would want to sit down and listen to three hours of us pontificating lot, about appreciate the- Appreciate it. Have a great day, everybody. Good, Tom? Well, I was just going to say, if anybody would like, I spoke at Heckerling this last January, and the paper I wrote to accompany the talk, I can send it to people. So if you'd like a copy of that, just uh, email me, and I'll, I'll send it to you. Beautiful. Thank you for joining us on the Family Biz Show today. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next week on the next episode. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show.
The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.